Co-hosting, as always, is John Carney. Hello. Hi. Uh, welcome to Pi Data Podcast, uh, Pi Data Manchester Podcast, episode 17, where we're talking to Dr. Evelyn Zikamu, who is a data engineer at a Manchester startup, Agent Software Limited. She has a PhD in applied maths and a first-class degree in maths, both from the University of Portsmouth. Evelyn, Hello. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add to that intro? Uh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. That's that. So that's no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, and for our listeners who don't know, what does Agent Software do? So Agent Software builds cutting-edge software for UK pro- pro- property professionals. So our flagship pro- product, Spectra, allows agents to market efficiently and effectively to vendors already on the market. Cool. Um, and uh, what else would you, what else are you involved in um, or that you'd like to give a shout out to, if anything? Uh, if anything, so um, on a daily basis, I, um, I sort of connect, connect all the pieces of the data ecosystem. So I access, uh, collect, audit and clean data from applications and systems. Um, and I also sort of create and maintain uh, databases, uh, build data pipelines, um, improve them, and sort of, um, yeah, just monitor and manage all the data systems. Um, yeah, that's what I, I do, um, yeah, mostly. And I also touch on um, the, the, the data science side. So I also do some analysis and, um, yeah. And there's like one-off analysis kind of stuff or, or like um, anything to deploy to production or anything like that? Uh, well, no, not at the moment. Um, but <laughs> I'm just doing, I do a lot of research and I also sort of try to uh, create models from scratch. Um, so just by using features and uh, discussing with my manager what kind of features are um, the best ones to use. And yeah, so that's how we usually start. So, cool. All right. So how did you get into data engineering? Um, normally, I mean, you kind of, ex- I expected with someone from your like prodigious math background to be very much on the modeling side, but, um, you know, with a PhD in maths and then a, a first class degree in maths, but to, to go into data engineering, because, well, an awful lot of people kind of ignore that you need the data engineering to do anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think for me, I've always, I've always wanted to become a data scientist, um, and I've, I've always been willing to do uh, what what what's necessary to get there. So um, that's why I started off by first working as a Python developer just to sort of improve my Python skills uh, and see how it's used in a in, in a company. Um, yeah, becoming a data engineer sort of helped me uh, know how to cleanse the data and, you know, get it yeah, to yeah. perfection before you even use it. So, yeah, so that's, yeah, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all about learning and also, uh, yeah, just not, you know, at, at the end of the day, I will get there. 
<laughs> so I'm willing to learn as much as I can so I can be equipped with the right uh, skills. Yeah, definitely. I mean, unfortunately, data engineering is far more of uh, my data science job than I would like it to be. But it is vital, what you say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I spoke about it to my supervisor who I'm, yeah, we, we get on really well, so we've kept in touch. And he, he you know, he, he did agree that becoming a data engineer first is a good, is a good step. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as someone who's, um, like, who's relatively new to industry. Exactly, um, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how, how have you found the process? Uh, so I found I, I am finding the process quite um, it's sort of I won't say uh, completely easy but I would say that there are challenges but it's also sort of enjoyable um, so there's there's lessons to be learned mistakes to be made and and joy at the end I guess <laughs> yeah excellent mm. it's, it's always if you know you're in a good place and you're finding the joy Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's when you know you've sort of mastered that particular problem. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do. They are one of the rare companies that understand what their candidates do. Cathcart sponsor Pilot in Manchester, Pydata Edinburgh, Mancamel, Scottamel, and are a beating heart in the data community. You can check out their website in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, data engineering definitely um, gives you an, an appreciation for everything that happens in the data before you get to the, the fun data science modeling yeah. part. Um, and there's so much about data provenance that gets missed a lot. Um, that you don't get to appreciate like how, or don't, there's no requirement a lot of times for data scientists to really think about how the data became the data, you know, like, um, so if you have survey results, um, how was that survey conducted? What was the population um, sampled? Yeah. Um, how were the questions framed? Um, and all of that can give you an idea of the kind of, of an explanation of why you have those answers, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or any kind of data collection like that, like where was it collected and how was it collected, why was it collected, they can all influence the data itself. Um, you're going to get different data depending on where you collect it from, what county you collect it from, um, who you ask, um, all of that stuff. So uh, definitely the data engineering part can give you more of an appreciation for that side of things, which will then um, enable you to build better models. Yes. That are more generalizable and more predictive of outcomes, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, depending on where you work, uh, a, a big company, a small company, um, the scope of work done under the title of data engineer can vary a lot. And I think that's what makes it quite hard to um, sort of hire for or to, to find a role. Like, it's hard to describe data science job or data engineering jobs because so much depends on, on where that job is located and how that company defines the role. Yeah. Um, so you said a little bit about um, what you do as a data engineer at Agent Software. It's very much, 
it seems like it's very much of a, a hybrid role. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you did already talk about it. Um, so what did, did you find, you said, I think, before that you, you did find that your um, Python development work um, does help you in your engineering role now. Can you talk a little bit more about how it's kind of sped up your, um, I guess, progress in your data engineering? Uh, so the fact that I'm quite comfortable um, coding with Python just made it easier because when I joined the company, I because um, I had to sort of uh, understand what uh, my manager had done in the past, understand the mm. work he did. So it just made it easier to read the code and understand and ask him questions and, and you know, move on to a different piece of code that he, he right. made. Yeah, so he just made the work um, easier. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and I, I sort of um, started coding quite quickly as well. Um, so because I think, yeah, my manager trusted my Python skills. So mm. it just made it easier. I yeah, I feel like um, with a lot of people who come into sort of a, a, at least a data science role straight from university, um, you know, they've got really good Python experience. They know about um, modeling data and whatnot, but they don't know so much about the industry side of things, like the software engineering side of things, like using version control um, or using GitHub or how to um, size or prioritize your work how to collaborate with other people who are working on the same project. Yeah. Um, so so uh, GitFlow and, and um, sort of the DevOps side of things. Um, so, yeah, I was imagining that, like, having had that Python dev experience already, that would sort of give you a, uh, an advantage in that respect, coming to data engineering, having already had all that experience. Yes, totally. Yeah, it just made, it made my work easier than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of uh, course you have a lot of great boss <laughs> yeah. your favourite of a pair yeah. my favourite person Phil hi Phil oh wait um, yeah so you mentioned you do a lot of work around kind of maintaining data pipelines um, kind of what kind of tools do you use to that I mean I'm assuming it's it's Python based um, but is it um, is it kind of raw Python or are you using any specialised tool or anything uh, it's it's mostly just raw Python, but we also use uh, cloud. Uh, what else do we use? <laughs> um, so, oh, yeah. Fine, I guess you have been on furlough for a little bit. <laughs> it's been a very long time since you've been in the office. Uh, so to our listeners, as uh, I said, furloughed for three months due to the virus situation. Um, which is working out great for you, it sounds like. Um, but <laughs> means absence from uh, doing the pipelines is already uh, <laughs> it's already gone. <laughs> yeah, I've not done much programming. No, no. Um, yeah, I mean, for the, for my pipelines, for example, we use it's all a Google Cloud platform um, and uh, just using Apache Beam. For our pipeline. Yeah, we've used that as well. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was trying to remember it. <laughs> Apache Beam. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was gonna guess that was probably what you're using. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Apache Beam is really good. Um, open source. 
uh, open source tool that um, uh, Google Cloud Platform is using as called Dataflow. So Dataflow and Apache Beam is the same, um, but just like I guess modified for the GCP uh, environment. Yeah. And so it can like connect to all the other GCP things, which is great. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, what was your other questions, John? <laughs> no, I mean that that was kind of it. I mean, um, I I quite struggled in um, in getting started with um, Dataflow, you know, and, um, on some of the projects we've looked at. So we've looked at we've we've ended up going with uh, other tools. So you've mentioned you've been working on uh, some pentadata buy models. Um, I know this, these have been used in an awful lot of um, different commercial applications by a lot of people. Can you like talk a little bit about um, how you find them? Uh, so we've mainly focused on the propensity cell model, which is basically just finding out how like how more how likely people are to selling their houses uh, in the UK. Um, so we got we we do have some we, we got some data from Royal Mail about all the addresses in the UK, and um, so I started off by doing some research uh, to gather as much features as possible. Uh, and then we sort of selected the ones that could be done, that could be used. And, you know, we, we wanted to get the, the work started as soon as possible. So we sort mm. of chose the easier features uh, to implement. And over sure. time, we added uh, more features. But, yeah, so the main thing was the research because, um, yeah, we, we needed to get it right, to get the right information because there's a lot of... Uh, advertising online and uh, you know just uh, wrong information um it's it's quite misleading can be quite misleading so i've i've i read quite a few um papers as well because some of hmm. some people some people have have had a chance to look at this topic uh, maybe not in details uh, they've had a different sort of um view different perspective um because we we intended to um, have some sort of scoring so that um, out of from one to ten, ten being more likely for a owner of a house to sell the house. Um, so yeah, it's we've sort of implemented it, but I was on furloughed just before we started. My favorite part, which is the analysis, but never mind. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Is there um, any kind of any particularly interesting approaches that you found? Um, that's easy to explain. <laughs> yeah, I think we we wanted to understand the data first, so we've yeah. sort of um, I think there was one graph that showed, uh, oh, yeah, there there was one graph that showed how how um the uh how the um the market, the house market sort of changed over time. Um, yeah, there was one graph that showed that, but that was based on the data we've had. So we've sort of just, yeah, it was based on the data we have. But then my manager and I had a conversation. We thought that we needed more data because um, the data we had wasn't, wasn't enough because um, there are about 32 million properties in the UK, I think. Okay. So yeah, I, that many. I know quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we didn't have that much, so we we added more data. 
Yeah. Sure. I think the main, the main, the main thing was to understand the data, to be able to tell the story based on the data instead of mm. making predictions without, you know, proving it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would imagine that your, I mean, as a seller, or looking to identify people who would sell. Yeah, that's uh, it. You know, as house as house owners, be quite different from a lot of the other research in that in that field. In that, I know oftentimes people have been looking into, say, for example, e-commerce environments, understanding um, like how often people are going to buy um, and how frequently. And obviously, say if you're buying clothes online, you might buy in your top every, depending on your, um, on how much you like buying new clothes, for example, um, you might buy something new every every month, and you're certainly not going to sell it, sell your house um, with any frequency at all. Yeah. Um, so an awful lot of models based on um, kind of frequency and recency are probably not very applicable to you. Mm, yeah. Oh, so to your business environment. Bit of business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, that sounds really interesting. A really interesting problem. Um, yeah, especially trying to figure out how to approach it from first um, from first principles. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, moving on to your PhD, it sounds so interesting. Um, your PhD research was on competitive behaviour between foraging animals. What does that entail and what made you decide to research that? And then how can the knowledge, I mean, I guess not, not all PhD projects have a direct application, but does this um, research have an application to the real world, say? So, lots of questions there, sorry. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Different questions. Well, yeah, several questions. Um, so I would say, so my interest in, in, in game, uh, in games, um, applied to humans and animals came from the study of mathematical models of strategic interaction between rational decision makers. Um, so, uh, using game theory, by using game theory, I wanted to provide an alternative uh, derivation of the results in um, my supervisor's published analysis of memory effects um, in the Hawk Dove game. And I saw also um, aimed um, to extend the work to new types of memory dynamics. Um, so I developed some statistical, some interest in statistical foraging um, after reading some of the work that ecologists had done in the 1960s, I believe, on home ranges. Um, so basically a home range is, is a part of any, an individual's cognitive, cognitive map of her environment, uh, that she chooses or he chooses to keep updating. Um, so I sort of wanted to understand how and why home ranges separate and at, at which point this happens. Uh, so yeah, yeah. The other, the other aim of my research was to understand how humans and animals adapt their behavior when competing and cooperating in a shared environment. Uh, so by using game theory. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I've, it, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on there. I wouldn't I, like. I'm from like a, a biological background, and I know some of the. I know some ecologists who'd be fascinated in that from an ecological perspective, and I can imagine how they start asking questions. None of it would involve maths. Um, yeah, exactly. Can help it. So, like, how does how does the math play into it? Ooh. 
I, 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 in, I in a way I can understand boots. Okay, yeah, sure. So I created a model from scratch. Um, so the model was was about the actual species um, updating their memory. So uh, whilst foraging, so um, so by visiting different uh, different 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 routes, I believe um, they would sort of remembered uh, the the places where they they've sort of um, ate a lot of food. Um, yeah. So and then over time, and obviously we've also a sort of that there was competition as well. So. When when the, the game when when the game starts, uh, when you press I guess run in in Python, when you run that model in Python, that's when you, you can see how the actual animals um, how they change their strategies based on um, yeah what so based on what they remember and also how they update it. Um, to begin with, they obviously don't know how many of them they are in the environment they're in. So, yeah, so that makes it a bit more interested because at the beginning, everybody is happy. They, they can eat a lot of food. But as soon as they, they start competing, that's when it, it becomes a bit, um, yeah, that's when <laughs> you just let them do their thing until, yeah. <laughs> it starts becoming very complicated when more and more things get involved. Yeah, exactly. It's all to do with memory. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the f first thing I thought of when you mentioned memory was kind of Bayes' theory, and that's because I've been doing Bayes' theory recently. But it seems like you go in with having a prior, uh, you know, a prior expectation, and then once something happens, you remember it, and your prior expectation changes. Is that is that is that nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also. So in my model, I, I've got um, the update rate called, um, well, alpha. So um, the higher alpha, um, the more expansive, the let's say, the birds are um, in a way that um, by being an expansive bird means that you like to, you have a longer memory. So you, you, sure. you obviously, um, you just like to remember stuff, I guess. Um, but the shorter it is the 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 shorter your memory. Um, so I wanted to investigate how uh, players with a long memory, so a higher expansive rate, and those with a, a less a, a sh sh sort of less expansive rate behave when they 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 were in the same environment. So it turned out that when they're together, so the 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 faster uh, players. They do much better, obviously, than the slower players. But when you separate them, when you have the faster players in one environment and the slower ones in the other, the slower ones do better on average because they eat a lot more. So they 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 share more uh, in comparison to the the expansive players because the expansive players just because um, they they just remember so much and they constantly compete with each other. They actually don't do well. Um, it's a bit mm. like the hawk dove game. Um, so it's also called the chicken game. So the, the hooked of game is a model of conflict for two players in game theory. So the principle of the game is that while the outcome is ideal for one player to yield, or let's say to avoid um, the worst outcome if neither ill yield, but the other individuals try to avoid it and, and, of, and out of pride for not wanting to look like a chicken. 
So each player tones the other to increase the risk of shame in yielding. Um, <laughs> however, when one player yields, the conflict is avoided and the game is for the most part over. Um, yeah. So it's quite interesting, the, the chicken game, but the hooked up game it's called. I call it the hooked up game. Yeah, that's fascinating. So. And it, it, it's also sort of uh, related to the prisoner's dilemma. Um, so, so the, with the prisoner's dilemma, I think the prisoner's dilemma is more like a, a paradox in decision analysis in which two individuals acting in their own self-interest do not produce the optimal outcome. So they're like the expansive players because they're, they're all selfish. So they don't do well. But, um, yeah, so, yeah. No, that's fantastic. So let me see if I'm keeping up here. So, in your research with multi, multiple animals, the different animals having different um, different memory rates, it's like a there's like a bunch of different um, hawk dove or chicken games happening at the same time. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, the animals that were most successful were those that had a, um, a that were less expansive. They were most successful, and that relates to. I'm not quite sure how that relates to the idea of like pride in a chicken game, in that like the value of something you lose when you avoid conflicts. Oh, um, so I hope that makes sense of the question. Yeah, well, yeah, you make sense. Um, but like the, the chicken game, um, let's say the hog dove game, when you you have um, when the dove play against each other. Uh, they they actually earn more than when two hawks play together. So the doves okay. the doves do better than the hawks. So the the more expansive players they're more like the hawks. They have the hawks behavior, whereas the the less expansive players have the doves behavior. So even though they they're not as they're not, first of all they're not as quick uh, to visit uh, different patches, uh, but also um, they. I guess it, it helps them um, have more in, on average, get more uh, on average by, by being a bit slow um, because they give time for the food to... Because over time, uh, the food increases, if you know what I mean. So it, give, it gives time for the patches uh, to increase in food. So it makes it... That's why they sort of earn a lot more on average, whereas the expansive players, they're too quick. So they don't give enough time for the patches to, to have enough food so that's why they, they do less uh, on, on average. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's fascinating. Uh, I was once playing with, so I'm someone with no background in game theory at all. Um, and uh, there's, there's a few websites um, where you can sort of play around, experiment with, with the different parameters that, that these the agents have. Um, and I was playing with one. It was the, the sheep wolf. Is that, which one's that? Is that the same model as what you've been talking about with the, with, with the other? So you've got grass, which is growing in patches. You've got sheep roving around and then you've got wolves wanting to eat them, um, eat the sheep. And, uh, there's various parameters that you can, you can modify and then play the scenario and then see how long everyone lasts. There's an optimum set of parameters for each for the grass, for the sheep and, and the wolf that allows for a um 
for everyone to sort of plateau out and and everyone's alive but you know everyone also gets fed including the wolves um and i was playing around with it for ages and every single parameter set that i i put out like more sheep that would feed the wolves but then no because we run out of grass so you think okay so fewer sheep but then you run out of sheep because the wolves eat more and the wolves die um and so it's really really hard to like there is an optimal number of all of these things um to keep the uh to keep everything balanced it's really hard <laughs> yeah it is yeah i mean from a um i suppose but we we had the um as of the date recording we had tim talking um we had our proper physical not physical virtual physical meetup on tuesday and when tim was talking about hyperparameter optimization that'd be a perfect use case for that <laughs> it would it really would um yeah yeah so i mean i guess for you as in though you weren't looking for like an optimum you were, you were looking to see how how behavior affected their environment and their own outcomes i suppose so, yeah so yeah different not trying to optimize but yeah so interesting i mean you, you did just yeah yeah i think you said you said that you did this in python yes so i yeah sorry no no i was just gonna ask him like how did you do it in python oh like, right <laughs> so i first sort of um uh came up with the model um did some analysis but i also wanted to implement it in python um so mm. we could sort of visualize uh the behavior of the the foragers uh, which was much more interesting. <laughs> it was cooler than than the maps. No, well, maybe in a way. But yeah, it, it was it was nice because um, we we were able to 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 analyze um, to, to basically just to get as as much as we could from the model, uh, different sort of analysis. Um, and yeah, it was just it was nice to see how the moving average behaves over time. And um, and also, like for example, the moving average at the beginning of the game, uh, we've we've found that um, when well alpha, which is the update, the update rate, uh, when it was 0.5, so the the birds will start, let's say, eating the food and everything. So the moving average will increase. And then at some point, it will just become flat. So it, it won't increase anymore or go down. So that was interesting. And also, we, we sort of um, uh, also produced graphs with different alphas, uh, so different uh, update rates and uh, different sizes of the, the environment. So by sizes, I mean the number of patches in the environment. So 100 will be 100 patches in the environment. Um, so yeah, the, the graphs are pretty cool just to see how it, it changes. Um, I think there was, yeah, there, there was one cool graph. Uh, I think it was when alpha was, um, I think it was 0.5. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, there's something going on when alpha is 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> something cool. But, um, you know, I, I just really enjoyed it and I think even, as my PhD came to an end, I just felt like there was, I could still carry on and do some more exciting things. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was, there was a lot to explore. And as I read different papers, I realized that, oh my God, 
that's so interesting. But that's so interesting as well. But that, so there's just so much. But I guess you just have to focus on one thing and yeah, and finish it. <laughs> and maybe yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to do a different PhD. Who knows? Or do another one. <laughs> You're braver than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what made you decide, um, having had so much fun in your PhD and seeing all this uh, yeah. potential for, for continuing the work, um, what met, led you down the road of industry rather than academia? Well, I think it's mainly because I wasn't sure if, if, I, was, if, if I was ready, because I, I had heard from my, one of my lecturers um, who said that she sort of she 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 she's also a doctor, but she sort of wished to have um, you know gone into the industry just to find out how how it's how how it is before uh, working in academia. Because uh, I think we when you do a PhD, it's you know you 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 do teach as well, and you it's very it's very tempted to just stay. Uh, but for me, I wanted to do something different. And just see if if it was the right thing to do. <laughs> so yeah, I think yeah, I think it was yeah. Maybe I, I hadn't thought about it for some time, but yeah, I just thought it, it was nice to to change. Yeah, I think it's really valuable when people are able to go in between sort of academia and industry. Yeah, um, I, I think both sides can learn from the experience for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm learning some new things as well working in this in industry. Yeah, there's a lot that academia could learn from software dev principles. That's yeah, for sure. exactly. That's <laughs> very true. Yeah. Yeah. The number of times I wish I had documented my experiments better. Uh, when it comes to writing up the paper afterwards, it's like, what did I do? And when did I do it? Which version of this code did I actually use for the experiment? And I have no idea because there's no version control. There's just nothing. Yeah. So, nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Horsefly is a data science driven provider of talent analytics solutions with offices in Manchester and Liverpool. The data scientists code in Python every day. If you love data and have a natural curiosity to dive into a data set, get in touch with Horsefly or reach out to PyData and we can pass you on. Check out their website in the show notes. Without the support of Horsefly Analytics, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. Have we got any other questions, John? I don't think so. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated in how you like how you approached the like your your PhD model. I mean, from a can you explain it in a really basic way? Um, like because I can imagine it's like some Bayesian components. I can imagine like Jennifer was saying, there's some agent-based components. I can imagine there's a um, some chaos theory in there or something. I've got no idea how one would go about. It's it's it sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think because it was to do with foragers, um, I just thought it'd be nice to have some sort of, um, uh, sort of, uh, nectar replenishment in flowers. So I, I, I chose birds, uh, cause I love birds. So yeah, so I, I just thought, okay, it'd be nice to have a renewal function, um, and I also read some papers about the different sort of renewal functions they were using. Um, and I sort of I chose a linear uh, increase toward a maximum. 
um, mm. so in each patches. And um, so, yeah, and then I, so in my renewal function, I had um, lambda, which was the, uh, which represented the, the nectar accumulation uh, sure. outside. Um, and then the second thing I also did was to consider the forages. So how do they move? Like the moving step, what, what, you know, what, what happens at each time step? And so at each time step, each player obviously decides whether to visit a new candidate site. Um, so in that case, they consider, um, they can consider it adding it permanently or whether they visit, they visit the usual next site and then consider removing it. Uh, so basically by removing it, I mean removing it from the memory. <laughs> and oh. adding it means adding it to your memory. So basically remembering it. Yeah. Okay. There's yeah. a lot of different options. Exactly. Yeah. Way. And then the final one, the third, the third um, option will be to visit the usual next site without considering a change. So you just visit it and yeah, you will not remember it or, or sort of remove it from your memory. You just visit it. Yeah. So mm. each one of those options had its probability and that probability, for example, the, um, when you visit a new candidate site and consider adding it permanently. So you, you, the probability will be epsilon, epsilon times alpha. So alpha being the expansive rate. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry. Alpha being the, the, the retention rate. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then epsilon uh, being in zero, one. So, yeah. Uh, and then, um, so alpha was also between zero and one. Um, yeah. And then that was, so also one thing to note is that as epsilon goes to zero, a player spends more time going through her line. Uh, before permanently adding it, uh, adding the new site or rejecting it for future renewals. So the line, I mean, the the actual, uh, the way he remembers the patches. So that that's like a line. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so and also, um, so that's what I remember. That's I think that was the second approach. And then I thought about the decision making. Um, so. Once a player visit a site, um, you know what what happens to the um, and then it eats the accumulated um, the accumulated resource. Um, and so, where yeah, so that that's one thing as well. I had a look at um, yeah. What else have I um, yeah? So yeah, once they've eaten. The, the the accumulated resource in the patch, um, there's nothing left, <laughs> and then obviously the patch, the food starts to grow again, or oh, the nectar, whichever way you prefer to call it. But yeah, um, yeah, it, it was, and then yeah, I think that was sort of the, the sort of um, that's what I I was I sort of thought about. Yeah, when I was thinking about the model. And I obviously discussed it with my supervisors and yeah. we, we, we tried to make it. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, to uh, bring down several years of PhD research into a five-minute quote. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, but that's, that's like really insightful, though. Thank you. I, I have a tiny glimpse into what that means now. And because, yeah, just figuring out all the very many different 
decisions and parameters and dimensions across which things can change. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make you uh, have, you've got a secondary experience, um, expertise in ecology? Yeah. As well as math. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember going to this conference. Uh, the conference was um, to do, I think it was, I think the, the audience, they were probably, I think they were all ecologists. So, so they knew yeah. the topic very well. And I went to the conference to give my talk. I was apprehensive. I was like, okay, hopefully it'll go well. But, um, yeah, I remember them asking me questions about, you know, questioning me. Why did you use this? Why, why did you use a, a linear, uh, function for the renewal rate? Why? So, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> wow. I can't even imagine how, uh, how scary that would be to be presenting my work to a field in a field that's not where my expertise is but where I'm applying it to yeah and and have their marty questions I mean yeah like well done <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> I, I forgot to present to my own peers let alone oh. <laughs> I think I think for me um the model is so simple uh that even when you read my my thesis and you read the model it's just so simple to understand and you're like, oh, actually, that, yeah, that's a, that's the best way to look at it. Because sometimes people make things a lot more complicated, and it just confuses you. And you know, you just wonder, oh my god, will I ever understand this? But I think, I think with my model, I just wanted it to be simple and easy to understand. So it made it easier for me to explain it to the ecologists, and and yeah, I guess they were impressed. <laughs> they, they, they liked it. Yeah, they they, they did like it because. When I present, they knew um, I was a mathematician, so they were like, "Oh no, she's going to bombard us with equations and everything." Uh, but that wasn't the case. I surprised them. I had, well, not music, but um, I had birds, you know, in my presentation. I had, yeah, I just made it so nice and simple. Um, less words, less equations. Um, so yeah, they, they, they were they weren't as 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 threatening by me. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a key skill, though, that people often forget. Like especially within industry, when most people aren't scientists of any, you know, people that you work with aren't scientists of any shape or form. They a lot of people haven't done any uh, math beyond GCSE, so making it so you can understand, so they can understand the analysis of your work and the output. Yeah, it's it's key to like whatever you do. There's no point in um, like explaining how your neural network works and all the different activation parameters because people only tend to care about what's the end, what's the end result. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. How is it going to make yeah. us more money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a key skill. Um, that's awesome. Well, I think that takes us to the end of our time, um, and we always have a last question that we ask everybody. And that is, who do you admire in the tech community? Oh, your tech community? It could be anyone, yeah, it could be anyone, or actually, from, from your academic community as well, um, so anyone that could be in Manchester, or anyone that could be anywhere, but who do you, who would you want to give a shout out to? Uh, ooh, I would give a shout out to, to Phil. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Phil Bates. Yeah, Phil Bates, yeah. That's for you. Brilliant. Shout out to you, Phil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also give a shout out to uh, one of my supervisors because he was in tech before. Uh, so I learned oh. a lot from him. Uh, so it's Dr. James Burridge. 
Yeah. Shout out to Dr. James Burrage. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And um, I hope to see you again in person soon. I hope so. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I will. I'll get to see you both soon. Look forward to it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.